this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. My name is Chad Hall, and I've spent most of my life circling paragraphs, poking holes in stories, and taking apart things that I can't always put back together. Whether it's in books or true crime documentaries, conversations or trending topics, I find gaps that most people breeze past. So this is a place to take my questions and to try to understand them. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. Sometimes I miss something or I change my mind. This is my podcast. It matters, but it doesn't. Okay, I've got some hot tea here. I am ready ready to battle dry mouth. I've got this interesting combo. I've been, uh, I'm I'm sure you tuned in to hear about my tea habits, right? I've been doing this uh, thing recently where I mix uh, different tea bags so that I can get, uh, try to maximize all the benefits I can so, for example, right now I've got uh, throat coat tea from Traditional Medicinals, which has slippery elm and all this stuff that'll hopefully keep my voice from getting as dry as it did the last time that I recorded. And then I just had to mix in some decaf green tea there, because why not? Green tea is always good for you. So I think I'm ready. I'm thinking I've got water this time, so hopefully I won't have to run and, and get water like I did in the middle of the last episode. And actually... For those of you who listened to the last episode, there was a few of you who were wondering uh, what I was talking to in the background when I went to get the water and I said, you've got one hour. I, I was talking to my dog. <laughs> I was telling him he had to wait an hour for his treat. So that's that's the mystery solved. I don't know. Maybe I should have left it a mystery. Uh, my My energy feels very different this week. It's probably the kombucha I just drank. Let me drink some of this tea. So it's been a strange week because uh, I got sick twice. I got sick twice in two very minor ways that I think are completely unrelated. Uh, I don't actually, I don't remember when I recorded the last episode, I had like three or four false starts. So I don't remember if I left in the episode that went up, if if I mentioned that I was feeling sick in the last one. I had something going on with my sinuses. Head cold of some sort. 
It only lasted about a day and a half, and it never really got major. I never even got to like the runny nose stage. It was just that, you know, when you're just really tired because there's stuff going on in your sinuses. That's about as far as it went for me. So I'm, I'm thinking that's a good sign about my immune system. And I also dumped in like some high-powered garlic and all these other things, some vitamin C and all this stuff to push it along. But just as I was getting better from that, I, I got up one day, I actually wrote in my journal, I feel great, I feel wonderful today, I feel rested, I feel refreshed. And then like that night I went to bed, I went to sleep and I woke up an hour later and I'm like, what is going on with my stomach? And it was like molten lava in my stomach. I started running through my head, like, what did I eat? What did I eat? And I hadn't actually even eaten that much that day. And it was nothing out of the ordinary. And I didn't know what it was. And then it moved from my stomach southward for the next day. Just gut, my everything, my gut was going, just talking to me for like 24 hours. Sucked. And But it never got terrible and then went away. But for like the last five or six days, I've been moderately sick, which is it's kind of annoying. You know, when I had that gut thing going on, I still have those hypo- hypochondriac tendencies. You know, I've, I, I consider myself a recovering hypochondriac in the sense that I don't freak out like I did before. It's probably because I don't have panic attacks anymore. The panic attacks are usually what made the hypochondria more more visceral, more real, because I'd have something happening in my body to accompany these crazy thoughts. So even though I consider myself hypochondriac in recovery, just like an alcoholic in recovery or a drug addict in recovery, recovery is forever in the sense that there's always going to be that little voice in your head that's uh, still in the addict mindset. So for the hypochondriac, even though you get better and you feel healthy, and for the most part, you think healthy, there's still a little voice in your head that goes, why did you get sick twice this week? And especially in 2020 and 21, which we're in now, anytime that you get sick in any way, there's a little voice in your head that goes, is this COVID? And for a hypochondriac, that's just never good. I got through it. I got through it. But it was just this nagging little voice. It's not a strong voice anymore, but man, it's persistent. Persistent. So, as you can imagine, having to sleep a lot, not feeling great, and like I said, not feeling awful, but not feeling great, and then having this nagging little voice, I was on I was on the fence a lot of the week. It's a very fragile situation. Someone who's as I said just seconds ago, someone who's had hypochondriac tendencies in the past and who's had anxiety issues in the past, there can be a delicate balance there. You have to be very careful and you have to pay a lot of attention to your emotions and your emotional state to keep yourself at least balancing on that fence so you don't fall off into the deep end. So it was very touch and go all week, but I made it. Nothing bad happened. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling great, actually. I'm I'm feeling great because, uh, speaking of the tea that I'm sipping, I'm a big tea person. I have a friend who's a severe insomniac. 
And he will go days where he only sleeps like three hours a night or something just because he can't turn his brain off. I've never had that problem. I've just had the, like the little kid, the whiny little kid, like, meh, I don't want to go to bed. That's always been my problem. I'm a night owl. I, as I've gotten older, I've, I've begun to appreciate the daytime a lot. It's actually my favorite time of the day. But I still hold on to the vestiges of that night owl tendency. So in the day, I love the day. That's when I do my work. That's when my mind is most creative. I love going outside and exercising. I love walking the dog. I love being in the sun. But in the night, as most of us do, I turn on television or something like that. I get wrapped up and I'm watching something. I'm like, ah, you know what? One more episode. One more episode. So I have this tendency to not want to go to bed. And it's it's not insomnia, because once I go to bed, I will go to sleep. It's just the problem of getting my ass in the bed and turning off the light and turning off the television. So the reason I got into tea was I decided to give chamomile a shot, right? Everybody always talks about chamomile tea, chamomile tea, chamomile tea. So fine. You know what? I'm going to, this was, I think, I can't even remember. This might have been in conjunction with the, the beginning of my anxiety, which makes sense. It would have made me open to any kind of thing that would help me to relax. This is why I always mention to my friends, Traditional Medicinals, the tea company. I don't know what tea company is better than what tea company. I mean, do any of us? I just like this brand because they make a chamomile lavender tea. And the mixture of those two things is like a narcotic for me. I would drink that tea and like an hour later, my eyelids are heavy. And it was like taking melatonin. If you've ever taken melatonin, which is not a drug, it's just a natural chemical that your body produces to make you tired. Well, you can get pills of it and make your body naturally tired. This had that same effect. I, I tried that one time. I had this. I had to take a flight in the morning, and I couldn't go to sleep. I was too excited. If I have something to do the next day, I always have trouble going to sleep because I'm excited. So I was staying at a friend's house who was taking me to the airport the next day. They said, "Here, take this. Take this melatonin." And so I took the little melatonin tablet and slept like I was dead. Only time I ever used that. Um, Sub, not substance, what would you call that? Supplement, that's the word I'm looking for. The other SU word. And when I started drinking the chamomile lavender tea, it was very similar. I was like, whoa, even if I wanted to right now, I could not stay awake. I would get tired enough that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't follow the narrative of what I was watching on television. So it was really easy to turn it off. And I started this thing that I'd never done in my life. I would turn off episodes in the middle. I was always the person I could always stay awake. I never fell asleep during movies. I could always stay awake till the end. Always. I've always had control of going to sleep. I've always, going to sleep for me my whole life has always been a decision. I decide I'm going to sleep now. And I would have to sometimes even go through like this little mental ritual to get myself into sleep. And here I was all of a sudden experiencing something that people have been telling me about my whole life. Oh, I fell asleep in the middle of that, or I was so tired I zonked out. Oh, that's what this is like. So I got really into chamomile lavender tea because it would make me tired. And I could kind of create this regular sleep schedule. 
drink this about an hour and a half before bed, and then you can go to sleep about the same time every night. Well, there's a problem with chamomile lavender tea. Maybe it's not the chamomile lavender tea. Maybe it's the size of tea mugs that I use. But I would fall asleep, and then I'd wake up two hours later, and I would have to pee like there was a gallon of water strapped to my bladder because (laughs) all the tea wanted out. And if you drink tea, you know that it's like beer or coffee. Then when you have to pee, it's not just one time. It's like three times before you... Before it's all out. So that became a problem because here's this thing that's making me tired, but then this thing that's waking me up. Long, this is a long story. I guess if you're tuning in, you know that the whole point of this is to tell long stories. So if you're not into that, this is probably, probably not the right podcast. I'm so shocked at how, uh, how much energy I have tonight in my talking. I can hear it. But anyways, the reason I'm feeling good before I completely derail is because I got these pills, supplemental pills, not medicine. They are turmeric, which is good for you, keeps your inflammation down in your body. Cinnamon, which is good for blood pressure, lowering blood pressure. It's Ceylon cinnamon, not normal cinnamon, which they are different things. The main ingredient, chamomile. So I can take this pill like an hour, hour and a half before bed, And get the same effect as drinking that tea. Because basically it's the same thing. I'm just not taking it in liquid form. I'm taking it in a pill form. I have my CPAP so I'm not waking up from choking and all of that crap that I was doing for decades. And now I'm taking the chamomile. And I'm not having to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I'm sleeping really well. And I've discovered something. I've discovered something. I don't know if it's true. This is a... We'll call it a hot take. I like that phrase. It's like, I'm about to say something, but it doesn't mean it's true. This is just a thought. Something I've been unofficially studying in myself. I think there might be a correlation between depression and sleep. Now, for all I know, this has been studied and proven already or studied and disproven already. But I've noticed on the days that I feel down, days that I'm just in, I'm struggling with depression, or just in a gray or a dark mood, and I can't get out of it. Since I've started journaling every day, I've started noticing that the days that I'm writing about being in a shitty mood are also the days that I'm writing about not having slept well. And I've also noticed on the mornings like this morning and three days ago when I woke up really refreshed, that I'm in a fantastic mood. And that fantastic mood allows me to get more creative work done. And when I get more creative work done, I'm in an even better mood. So it's all kind of tying together. And I'm liking that. Uh, One other thing I should explain while we're talking about putting things in your body and me having all this energy tonight, started to talk about it at the beginning I drank kombucha earlier, and I don't know if it's true, but I think the caffeine in kombucha is stronger than it is in a cup of coffee, so I'm a little bit, a little bit jacked on caffeine right now. I also only drank it an hour and a half, two hours ago. Hopefully, it doesn't stick around for 12 hours, but yeah, I couldn't help it. I, you know, I had the, the gut 
gurgling and problem. So I've been eating things like uh, yogurt and kimchi and sauerkraut, uh, mushrooms, putting all the stuff in there that's good for the gut, some oatmeal, fiber, all those things. Try to give my gut a little bit of help. So I'm at the store and I see another thing that's good for your gut. I walk past the section where all the kombucha is. And there's this brand called uh, Kavita. It's kind of more of the, when we talk about Pepsi, I mean Pepsi. Wow. Jumping ahead of myself. When we talk about uh, kombucha brands, Kavita is like kind of like the uh, the Pepsi or the Coca-Cola. It's like the name brand. It might even be made by one of those two companies. And because of that, it has tends to have a higher sugar content than the other ones. So I don't really usually go for that brand, but I couldn't help it. This one was Blackberry, which I could care less about, and Hops. And that got my attention because there was a period of time, it was about five, six months ago, maybe even longer. With COVID, I don't remember. I have, I have, a, bit, I have a very poor understanding of how much time has elapsed. But there was a period of time where I was drinking uh, one beer a day. I was drinking one beer a day because I had read about all the health benefits of hops. But I stopped doing it because I can only drink certain kinds of beer. I can only drink uh, mostly IPAs because of the yeast. The, the, you use different kinds of yeast and different kinds of beer. Someone someone tried to explain it to me once. I'm not a beer expert. If you're a beer expert, I'm probably going to get this wrong. But there's top-floating and bottom-floating yeast. One of them is in, you know, like Miller and Budweiser and Corona and all these other kinds of beers. And the other is an IPA. The one that's an IPA, I can tolerate. I don't have a problem with. The other one just gives me a stomach ache. But if you know anything about IPAs, IPAs tend to be a little bit stronger, a little bit more alcohol content, which also means higher sugar content. So I wasn't liking the idea of just kind of pouring more sugar into my into my body every day. So I stopped doing that, and I tried for a little while. Lagunitas made these, or makes these, uh, I think they're called hop refreshers or something like that. They're non-alcoholic, and uh, I was drinking those for a little while. I don't know exactly why I stopped. I I know that they weren't as good as beer, or or as good as something that's not beer. (laughs) It's like this weird middle place. So maybe I just didn't enjoy them enough, or maybe they had sugar too. I don't remember. But I stopped with the hops thing. But here I am looking at kombucha. It's got hops extract in it. I figured, hey, let's give it a shot. So after this experiment, I'm hearing the energy that I have right now. I would definitely say if I have a busy day and I want to get stuff done early, maybe kombucha with hops in the morning would be a good start. My brain is firing on all cylinders right now. As far as the podcast, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the tone I want for this. Obviously, I'm not trying to cookie cutter every episode the same, but when I listen to this later, am I going to enjoy this more wired version of my brain or the more, I don't want to say mellow, but more broken down version like in the last episode where I was just kind of at my wit's end and I just had no choice but to be uh, completely bare and honest? I'd like to think I can maybe fluctuate between the two. I don't know. 
So I was thinking about before I got into this episode, what am I gonna what am I gonna talk about? And it's such a to go back on the last episode, it's such a curse. Because once again, you start getting into that loop of what am I doing? Do I know what I'm doing? Am I doing the right thing? And I had this, I had this moment where things, where you realize something and it makes you laugh because you're like, why didn't I think of that before? Now, the first thing, hopefully I remember both of them. I remember there was two of them. The first thing that I remembered or realized was, hey, when you go meet a friend, you don't show up with notes. Your brain just works. You remember what you remember. You forget what you forget. And why should the podcast be any different than that? At least in in this format, this whatever you want to call it, vulnerable, honest, hopefully it's those things. Hopefully you would describe it. That's what I'm trying to be. Hopefully you would describe it that way. Uh, what was the second thing that I remembered or I realized? I just said, you know, you remember what you remember. You forget what you forget. I forgot. So what I did instead, instead of coming into this with notes and try, try to uh, make sure, when, when you come in with notes, the problem is, is you get into this mindset of like, make sure you hit all the points. I don't want to do that. So what I did instead is about an hour ago, I uh, took out a piece of paper, a small piece of paper, and I just said, what are, what are the things from this week that... Uh, what would I consider highlights from this week? You know, what are interesting things from this week? And I just wrote out what I could remember. And then I, I uh, put the paper away. I did a little meditation, get myself in a relaxed state. And then I made some tea and then I uh, turned on the microphone. And I'm thinking that maybe just by running through that list in my head before refreshes a few things in my head so that if I if I run out of a train of thought here, that there's something that's been jogged that I can grab onto. But I don't want to have the list in front of me and I don't want to be checking things off. It becomes too, I said last week, this isn't a show per se. That becomes too much of a show. You're like, what did I watch on TV this week? That might matter, it might not matter. Just even mentioning that makes me want to all of a sudden talk about that. But now that I brought it up, it'd be kind of hard not to at least mention one of those things. I don't know why. I have this fascination with the Tower of London. I Honestly, I don't even know what it is about the Tower of London that I find fascinating. It's not like I'm watching things, trying to learn about the architecture of the Tower of London the history of it. It's not specific focus on the history or not a specific focus on the haunting or, you know, like there's no one specific area of the Tower of London that I'm like, this is what I'm trying to get from it. It's just generally when I see something about the Tower of London, I want to watch it. I have no idea why. I really, really don't. I know that there was something, either a TV documentary, you know, like one of those either episodes or standalone things that you can find on Amazon Prime that are like 45 minutes or an hour that are probably cut from a TV show, or if it was an actual episode of a TV show, or if it was a full documentary that I run across, but I had watched this thing about the Tower of London, and I'm pretty sure that's where everything came from. And I've been looking to find that thing again, but of course, if you don't write down the name of something, and it's like what I just described... 
but you can't really just find it that easily. So I've been just going through, and every time I see something on the Tower of London, I watch it. Well, this isn't it. And this one I was watching the other night, I was like, this looks like it. This looks like the footage, but then it just went a completely different direction. No, this isn't it. The one I watched, and there were two specific things about it that I remember. One, they had a big section about the Ravens. And I'm not a historian, and I'm not going to give you all the facts, but the basic thing with the Tower of London is that there is a mythology around these ravens that are at the Tower of London. For those of you who don't understand the difference between a raven and like a blackbird, which I didn't, or a crow, it's basically size. Ravens are huge. They're like the size of a 15-pound dog or, or more. They're big birds. They look like giant crows, Okay. So they have these at the Tower of London. And I don't remember if it's a curse or a prophecy or whatever it was, but there's this thing that says that when the last raven departs from the Tower of London, the British Empire will end or the tower will be lost. I can't remember. In other words, bad stuff happens if there aren't ravens there. So they have these ravens there. They have this guy named the Raven, I think it's the Raven Master. And he just, his job is to take care of these giant birds, but to stop them so that they never depart, so this curse never happens, they clip their wings. So there's these giant birds that can't fly, which is just, it's really sad. It's really sad like that a superstition that nobody, honestly, nobody can believe to be true is dooming these birds to a life outside of the sky. You know, it's different if you're an emu or an ostrich or a turkey, you're not meant to fly chicken. You're not meant to be in the air. But a raven's meant to be in the air, especially a bird that big. So it's just, a, it's kind of a sad thing. But I remember there's a prominent section about that in the thing that I saw probably a couple years ago. And the other section actually went inside the tower and uh, the yeomen. Some of us uh, refer to them as the beef eaters, the guys in the, the red suits with the kind of black top hat the guardsmen at the Tower of London, I think they're officially called the Yeoman. I can't remember if this guy was, if he was the Raven Master or if he was just a normal Yeoman or if he was like the captain of the guard. But they show you his living quarters because they live in, some of them, at least this guy did, live inside the Tower of London. So they show you his living quarters and I, I believe he had a wife. So they show you how his wife lives and they kind of just they show you the room where he has his his uh, uniforms hung up. And it was just cool seeing inside of this in this way. It's very different, you know, because a lot of the, a lot of the things on things like the Tower of London that you watch will focus on history or the sensationalistic stories. And the parts that they will show you are kind of the parts that you would you'd see on a, on a tour. Like, for example, I believe they call it the Trader's Gate. It's this uh, this art stone archway with kind of, it looks like barn doors almost, like you can see through them, but they're like barn doors, wooden barn doors. And it's submerged, like half of it's submerged in water. And it's because they used to bring in people, prisoners, I believe, through this gate via a rowboat. They'd be on the Thames, Thames River, and they'd offload them onto this rowboat, and then they'd take them in here. Because this is a very secure 
way to bring them in. Whereas if they tried to bring him in through land, somebody could lay a trap or something. But this way, you'd have to be on the water to be able to get anywhere near it. So it's a very secure way. Well, those are the type of things that you will see on your average show. But this was inside and showing some of the intimate parts. So that's why I want to find it again. If any of you, if honestly, if any of you out there have seen it, let me know. You can, I never, I never say this. You can contact me two ways. You can either message me on Twitter, either DM or just at reply me on Twitter. My Twitter is at the real chat hall. I'm never on there, but I will, I will get the notification if you send me something. Or you can go to my website. There's a connection. I think it's the name of the page connection. It's going to have a list of people that I want to meet. But at the bottom of that page, there's a little form where you can send me a message. You know, you're familiar with those on websites, message, message boxes. So if, if you have seen the documentary on Tower of London that I'm talking about, tell me what it is. Tell me where to find it. I want to watch it again. But the thing that I found the other night, the Tower of London thing that I found the other night that I was watching, it's on Amazon Prime right now. There's three episodes of it. It's called Inside the Tower of London uh, Crimes, Conspiracies, Confessions. I think that's even the right order. And I only watched the first episode so far. Very interesting. It's more of what I had said before. You know, you see the parts that you would see on tour. And you hear some of the history. And I don't know if... I don't know if you're like me. When you watch history things, you tend to tune out and only catch like 10, maybe 20%. Because there's part of your brain that's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard this stuff before. Well, I must have done that, having watched enough things about the Tower of London, because there were things mentioned in this one that I didn't remember. And the one that stands out to me the most is the story of Lady Jane Grey. I, you know, I even it annoys me that I have to call her Lady Jane Grey when she was uh, Queen of England for 19 days, I think it was. Why don't we call her Queen Jane Grey? I mean, we're Americans. We wouldn't call her anything except for Jane Grey. But I mean, we, as in people who read history. It's a very interesting story. It's a very tragic story. I'm actually completely, after watching this, completely fascinated by Jane Grey. It does sound cool to say Lady Jane Grey. Maybe I, because I grew up watching and playing with G.I. Joes, and there was a character named Lady Jane, which, now that I think about it, was probably a nod to the historical character. But she's she's not a malign character in history. She's a, a very, it's not even overlooked. She's just like the most underwritten character in English history. Part of it is because she didn't get to live very long. But her story is, is tragic and fascinating. So I'm, I'm probably, I've, I've already found... Uh, an audio book on her that I want to listen to, and then two other books that I want to read. I would like to learn more about her. So the, here's the basic story. Of course, uh, I'm pulling this information from my head <laughs> from a documentary about the Tower of London. So uh, we're at Xerox of a Xerox so far. So, and who knows what their source was. So I'm not saying everything in here is absolutely true or that I'm remembering it correctly. But if we were having coffee or tea together, 
We didn't have to wear face masks. This is what I, this is the way that I would tell you the story of Lady Jane Grey. So there was a king. I don't remember his name. They called him something the sick. I think it, let's just call him William. This was a good chance his name was William. I think it was William the Sickly or Sick. He was a young kid. He was like, I think, 10 years old. And he was king of England. He had uh, inherited the crown because his parents were dead, obviously. And he, I don't remember what he had, but he wasn't going to make it. England at the time was Protestant, as it is now. But the theoretically, the next person that would try to lay claim to the crown were the Tudors. And, and specifically, in this case, Mary Tudor, who, uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to Mary Tudor. The problem is Mary was Catholic. So a lot of the, the English, especially the people in power at that time, the adults around this child king who's sick and dying, did not want to lose the kingdom to a Catholic because they had just gone through this whole thing. You know, Henry VIII had created the Anglican Church to move them to Protestantism well, because he wanted to get a divorce. But he'd gone through this whole process of moving the country away from Catholicism. And now here was this thing threatening to turn the tide back. They didn't want it to happen. So there's this guy, I think his name, I think he was Lord, so we'll call him Lord Northumberland. He did not want that to happen. But he wasn't a, a good noble person either. He also wanted to control the kingdom. So he thought that if he could get someone else in that was young or someone weak that he could control, then he could essentially act like the King of England or the Queen of England while doing it under the guise of the King or Queen. So the closest blood relative to this sickly king was Jane Grey. Jane Grey, I think she was uh, 14 or 15 years old. She was a teenage girl. No idea that she was in line in any way. I mean, obviously she knew that she was related to royalty in some way. You know, she wasn't living in the slums as probably 80 to 90% of the populace in England at the time were living in near poverty compared to the monarchy. Northumberland, he proposes this plan. He says, I'm going to marry her to this, I can't remember his name, but this young teenage boy. I don't remember why he picked him, but there's a reason. I think maybe it was his nephew. I can't remember. But he meets with this boy's parents and, the th- and all of them, they kind of scheme together. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get these kids together. We're going to get them married. We're going to have the sickly king name her his heir. She will be the queen and he will be, I can't remember the title, for a, a husband of a queen that isn't the blood. You know, because the person who retains the crown, at least in the British monarchy, is the person with the blood. So if, for example, Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth is the queen. Even if she had a husband, she would still be the queen and the head monarch because she's the one with the bloodline. The husband, I, mean, I think he's like something similar to lady-in-waiting, but, you know, it's like gentleman-in-waiting or something. I can't remember. They get an official title, like they become Duke of something. You know, they give them some sort of official title. Anyways, she would be the queen, and then this this boy would be her husband. 
So they hatch this plan. They get the kids together. They've never even seen each other before. Well, they end up kind of liking each other. So it's, it's working out. Their plan's working out. The sickly king names her the heir. He croaks. She's queen of England. A girl who did not want to be queen of England. She finds out what's going on, that she's not full what's going on, but she finds out that she's about to be the queen of England. And she's like, no, I don't want this. You know, she's being offered what at the time many would consider probably the most powerful position, at least in the Western world. And she's like, no, I don't want this. So there's number one, why I think she's an interesting character. She's refusing something that most people would murder other people for. And at a young, at the age of a young girl, I think that shows a very powerful strength of character. So she says, no, you know, obviously she doesn't have a choice. So she becomes queen of England. Well, then she finds out afterwards the full scheme. She finds out that the full scheme, which I haven't even told you the full scheme, the full scheme was to get them married. She's the queen of England. And then I don't know how this happens, but they make the boy into the king, even though he's not the one with the blood. I don't remember how that happens, but that's kind of the plan. And even though she likes this boy, she loses it. She's like, no, he will never be king. Because now she realizes that she's a pawn. So she starts resisting. And while this is going on, Mary Tudor and her army, I think Mary Tudor is a young, younger woman as well. She's built up an army. And the army is coming in, you know. <laughs> They're going to take over. They're going to take a kingdom by force. And she's going to uninstall Jane Grey. And Jane is still fighting against her own people, against Northumberland, against uh, her own parents. That's what it was. I remember why they chose the boy. The boy is Northumberland's son or nephew. But the, the people that he schemes with are Jane Grey's parents. That's the part that I forgot. So now she's pissed off at her parents, too, because she realizes that her parents have kind of thrown her under this bus. Well, guess what? The council, there's this council. Um, this is before Parliament. So it's, I guess, in some ways, something similar to like a parliamentary body. They're probably a council of lords. And uh, they are on the side of Jane Grey because, you know, she's inherited the throne through succession. The sickly king named her the heir, and he was officially the king of England. So in monarchy terms, Mary Tudor is an usurper. She's coming to steal the crown. Even though she, of course, to steal it and get support, she has to have some sort of blood claim. The Tudors do have some sort of blood claim to the throne. Well, they realize, this council realizes, uh, well, Jane Grey's, she doesn't want to be queen. This plan is not working. I don't even know if they knew about the plan, but they're just like, you know what? The chances are that Mary's going to take this. So maybe we should just side with Mary so that when she gets in power, she won't, you know, slaughter all of us. So they switch sides. And then that means it's done. It's over with because the support, Jane Grey's support is, is gone. So uh, I think it's 19 days. After 19 days, she's removed as Queen of England and she's called a traitor. In order for this crown to pass on to Mary, they have to say that she was illegitimate, that Jane Grey was illegitimate. But Mary is, um, what I wanted to tell you about Mary actually is, I mentioned this earlier, 
Mary, as a Catholic, would go on to murder many, many Protestants and torture many, many Protestants. There's part earlier in this episode where they go into explicit detail about the type of things her and uh, Bishop Bonner did to people, which is worth watching to know the history of that. And that's where you get the, you know, the whole game. Bloody Mary, stand in front of the window and say Bloody Mary. Well, Bloody Mary is Mary Tudor. They call her Bloody Mary because of all the people she had killed. So here's the thing, though. Mary is not stupid. She's not stupid, and she knows that this 14, 15-year-old girl, Jane Grey, did not plot this whole thing, that she was not, that she was a pawn, and that her young teenage husband was also a pawn. So she tells them, don't worry, you're going to be put on trial. You have to be put on trial. In order for me to get the crown, you have to be put on trial as traitors, but I'm going to, basically, I'm going to absolve you. I'm going to, that's a religious term, but she's going to acquit them. Oh, I forgot to mention something very important about Jane's parents also. When Mary was in the process of taking over, her parents fled. Her Jane Grey's parents took off and left Jane behind. Like, peace, we're out of here. Good luck, girl. And they just bailed on her. So here, Jane is in the Tower of London as a prisoner now. She's, she was the Queen of England just like days before. Her husband is in another cell. And uh, she's going to be put on trial. But it's okay, because she's going to be acquitted by the new queen, Mary Tudor. But then all of a sudden, something awful happens. Jane Grey's stupid-ass father rises up an army and attacks the Tower of London. Attacks the Tower of London and insists that Mary surrender the crown. And he starts uh, bombarding the tower. And I assume this means with catapults and stuff like that. Well, he's bombarding the tower while his daughter is still inside. So obviously he doesn't care uh, he doesn't give a shit about her because she's inside there and just in just as much danger as everyone else in there. And because of this attempted uprising, now Mary cannot acquit Jane Grey. So she, whoever the trial was through, they find her guilty. They find her and her husband guilty and they kill her husband and then they take her out. And this is, it's done so well in the documentary. You should watch this just for this scene. It's heartbreaking. But this is uh, based off of historical accounts of what happened that day that she was taken out. And basically the way that this execution was done is, is done with an axe. It's beheading. And it's done on a block. So they blindfold the person and then the person is, they're not forced down onto the block. They're actually expected to put themselves onto the block. This is supposed to be, I guess, I think this is supposed to be some sort of symbolic surrender to justice. Like they have a choice, right? So Jane is very composed. For a, for a teenage girl that knows that she's going to be taken out, she just watched through the window of the tower. She had watched her husband beheaded. And she's going out there and she's very, very composed. Very strong for such a young person. And I want to make sure I say person there because I'm, I think that man, woman, whatever, anybody put into that situation would have trouble 
being composed. This is not a, oh, I feel like when people say, oh, it's such a strong woman, they're trying to emphasize the fact that she was a woman. But <laughs> tell you what, if I, as a 43-year-old man, if I just watched somebody beheaded and I was being marched out, I would not be composed. I would probably be snotty and urinating all over myself. Let's be honest. So she's composed and she's so composed that when they bring her up onto the platform, because obviously people want to watch this. You know, there was no Facebook and no no Twitter where we could eviscerate each other <laughs> online back then. So they would actually watch literal eviscerations, literal beheadings. They they bring her onto the platform and she's composed, but her ladies in waiting. And the priest, who's supposed to be there to comfort her and give her <laughs> religious counsel, they break down into tears. And so she kneels down and they, they put the blindfold on her. And I don't know who did this, but they kneeled her in the wrong spot for her height. So now she's blindfolded and she's supposed to lean forward put her hands, you know, feel out for this block and then put her head onto the block. But because she's shorter than they thought, they set her back too far. So she leans forward looking for the block and the block, she can't find it. And she's blindfolded, right? So she's feeling around with her hands and then she loses it. And she starts sobbing. I don't know what to do. Dear God, help me. I don't know what to do. And everybody's frozen. Like nobody knows what to do. Then eventually somebody comes and helps her find the block. And then, you know, you can figure out the rest. It's such a tragic story. But I feel like there's so much strength in that story. I'm just, I mean, I'm sure you can tell from me just talking about it. I'm just kind of enraptured by the story, to be honest. And it's like I have like a, a history crush on Lady Jane Grey. Mm. Okay, <laughs> let's, uh, let's take that back. Because I just forgot, I forgot when I said that we're talking about teenage girl. Yeah, that's not what I meant. Not what I meant. You get you get what I mean. Noble character in history, put into a tragic tragic situation, and a fatal tragic situation. So I didn't. Well, I did not think I would be talking for like a half hour about Lady Jane Grey, but I recommend you guys watch that. Sometimes, uh, remember I said earlier. You know, you watch history. You tune out parts of it. History is really hard. It's really hard for us to grasp onto history. It's like, to us, the history is no different than fiction. I mean, we understand that there's a difference, but we face it in a similar way because we're so detached from it. You know, like, you can't imagine what the Middle Ages were, were like. This wasn't the Middle Ages, but uh, you can't imagine what uh, the Civil War was like because we don't have any way of really conceptualizing that world. So there's not a lot of tangibility. You know, like the most tangible things that we have when we read about history are the human beings and the human stories, because those are things we connect with. You know, you can connect with that feeling of that girl going to that block. You can feel that. And that's when history, like, comes alive. All the dates and all that stuff, it's just, it's, it's data. I mean, unless you're a historian, then it's hard to connect with that stuff. It's hard to let it pop out the way that it should. That's, that's why whenever I see something like this, I'm like, go watch it. Because here's the opportunity. To, you know, here's a little window into history that will come alive because it's such a human story.
And I think a lot of us in the last year have hopefully connected to things in history that we weren't able to connect with before. I'm not going to go into these, you know, deeply because we're we're already at almost an hour here. But I think that uh, for me, you know, you read about the Black Plague and you read about influenza and you read about polio and you read about all of these pandemics in the past. And it doesn't really connect. The Black Death doesn't really connect. The bubonic plague doesn't really connect. And then you go through one. You go through COVID. And it's different. You see it differently because there's that hook, that anchor. Oh, I can put this next to this and they're similar. So because I can understand this, I can now understand this better. Or the, the attempted coup on the Capitol building. That's something that we've read about in history books in other countries. Never thought it would happen in America, but then we saw it. And it became real. I mean, for me, I thought a lot about World War II. I thought a lot about the non-Nazi Germans. What I mean by that, uh, Nazi being people officially, you know, in uniform. But what about all the Germans in that country at the time? I thought a lot about that, and I've never had thought about that before. I never thought about the fact that, you know, the, the Nazis didn't just take over Germany. The Nazis won over Germany, which is to say that a certain, I would say, at least majority of the populace at the time believed in what the Nazis were doing. Now, they didn't know everything that they were doing. I know that a lot of history books say that the average German wasn't aware of what was going on in the camps, which, of course, it you can include the people in the cities around the camps that could smell the bodies burning. Those people obviously knew, but the bulk of the people didn't know. But they had been, they had bought in to Hitler's story. They had bought into his lie. And I never understood that. I never even thought about that. It's not that I didn't understand it. I'd never even thought about that people, people believed that he was telling them the truth. People believed, some of these German people believed he really was a savior. And it didn't mean that, that these German people were anti-Semitic necessarily. Of course, many of them were, but it didn't mean that they all were. Some of them just believed what he was doing. And I think about that a lot when I think about things that I've seen in the news for the last four years, where a president of the United States gets on TV and says something horrible about other people and other people mitigate it. Oh, that's not what he meant. Yeah, that is what he meant. Now, I'm not comparing the two men. There's a drastic difference between the two of them. You know, one person systematically created uh, <laughs> created a system. <laughs> systematically created a system. Great English. Created a system to a system of genocide to murder over six million people human beings. There's a huge gap of difference between the two men. But what I saw in the last year of people believing things I couldn't believe that they were believing made me able to look at Germany during World War II in a different way and realize, wow, people believed what was happening. I mean, they believed what they were being sold, that, that he won over the country that they supported him as a, as a leader. 
Once again, they didn't all know the worst of the worst, but they didn't know bad things like this. Just alone, the idea of taking over other countries and trying to invade Russia, they knew about that stuff, all of them. And they bought into it because they bought into the nationalistic rah, rah, rah. And because I got to see in the last four years, I got to see probably a 10, 20% of the vigor that those people had. I can now extrapolate what it would be like if it was so much worse. So that phase of history became very alive for me. And it made it more uh, morally complex for me. You know, when you, I'm sure it's the same for all of you, at least in America, when you read history books about World War II, it's very black and white. It's very good versus evil. Bad Nazis, we won. We good. You know, that's the basic story. And it doesn't talk about all the messy gray of all the people that supported it, that weren't all getting necessarily the truth, but they believed in some of the bad stuff we were doing, but they didn't believe in the other. You know, the some that that believed in invading other countries, but didn't believe in the anti-Semitism, or it was a mix and a messy mix, just like in this country. You know, there's nobody, there's no political party in this country where everybody in the political party believes the same thing. It's all a messy mix. And that really, really made me look at that differently. And now as we, as we move forward, I think a lot about how are we going to move forward when we're all so far apart? The place that I go to automatically was, is Germany. How did Germany heal from that? And it's probably not the best place to look for that answer because it took Germany a long time to heal from that. But at the same time, what happened in Germany was one of the worst things in history. So the fact that it took a long time is not surprising. But you have to remember also that the country was split. So that's how they dealt with it to some degree, right? You know, East Berlin, West Berlin. Some of you may not be old enough to remember that. But until 1989... East Germany and West Germany were two different countries. There was no Germany. There was the communist Germany, and then there was the Western Germany. That's what I grew up with. Now, it's been long enough that I can't remember what the, what their flags look like. One was yellow, black, and red. That might still be the German flag. I don't remember what the other one looked like. But that was that's how they <laughs> yield from that. So then my second thing I always think about, well, how did America heal after the Civil War? That's another bad example because a lot of the problems we're having today in some way root back to problems, things that never resolved from the Civil War. That's why you still see morons out there with Confederate flags. That To them, it stands for something I don't, I don't really understand. I mean, they say it stands for heritage or whatever, but... To, it's a gross heritage. Sorry, if you're from the South, I'm sorry. You have to understand, I didn't grow up the way that you grew up or you grew up. So if there's an anti, if there's a non-racist aspect to that that I don't know, then it's something I don't know. But to me, that's when I see that flag, that's what I see. I think of two things when I see that flag. I think of racism and I think of Duke's Hazard. Product of my times. Anyways, I'm getting a little deep here little deep and probably getting myself into some sort of trouble. 
<laughs> I laugh because I don't really care. Nothing here is meant to be taken as truth. Nothing here is ever meant to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't think. I'm just telling you what's on my mind. Sometimes I'm going to cross a line for you because we all have lines. I can't believe he said it that way. Yeah, well, guess what? Not scripted. Talking on the spot. Sometimes I'll listen back and probably think, can't believe I said it that way. I know even times when I've scripted things, I've said, whoa, can't believe I said it that way. I do my best to uh, be articulate, but I don't always succeed. So, uh, once again, not sure how to end these. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, let's do something interesting here. Let's um, let's make some noise with this post-it on my table. That's not what I wanted to do. Let's recommend uh, an album. Something to listen to this week. Something that has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about. I have a lot of, uh, I don't want to say obscure because that makes it sound like I'm some super niche music appreciator. I just, I, you know what I did when I was younger? I always wanted to, actually, let me pull back a little bit more. When I was younger, I grew up in a household where um, my mother, she listened to the music that her parents listened to. And she was born in 1950, but she didn't listen to the music of the 60s. She listened to what her parents listened to. So a lot of, I mean, she had some stuff that was her own, of course, but for the most part, you know, like she was more into like the Sinatra and stuff like that. You know, later she, I remember she had a Michael Jackson tape and uh, Air Supply and maybe ABBA, maybe. But I didn't grow up with a lot of the music that people of my same generation grew up with. I didn't grow up with parents who listened to the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin. So I had to discover that stuff on my own. But the way that I discovered that stuff on my own was just being completely ignorant of pop culture. And uh, we moved a lot when I was a kid, so I didn't get to absorb it from the people around me the way other people did. So I would, at the time, I would start buying magazines. And I would read the magazines, and what I would do is I would read... Like when I was buying guitar magazines, like Guitar World, I would buy that magazine, I would read the interview, and I would read the interviews, and I would find the albums that the guitar players were talking about. So like if uh, James Hepfield from Metallica mentions another, you know, like a Venom or something like that, um, the Misfits, they would actually, James Hepfield would always talk about the Misfits because Cliff Burton, their original bass player, was a huge Misfits fan, and he got him into the Misfits. Metallica later covered the Misfits. That's how I discovered the Misfits. So what I would do is first would buy those albums and or listen to those albums if I could. Didn't have a lot of money at that time. I was a young kid. As I got older, I got obsessed because of that. I got obsessed with these books, you know, like 1001 albums to listen to before you die. Rolling Stone, top 50 albums of all time, greatest albums of all time, or actually I think it's top 500 albums of all time. I would buy those. I have those. I have like a, probably 10 of those books around the house. And I would go through those and I would find the album. So I have I have stuff that uh, I like that most people I know haven't heard of. So maybe, I, I don't know, I'll share some of those. Some of them might just be normal stuff. But I think maybe I'm going to start recommending an album every week. 
So let me get to it. It's enough. I'll give you all the story of my life right there. <laughs> Still uncomfortable with this personal detail stuff. But the album I'm going to recommend is, uh, what the hell is the name of the album? Pussycats. This is an album by Harry Nilsson. Unfortunately, I believe most people will know one song by Harry Nilsson. And it's probably, I would say, probably the worst song to know by Harry Nilsson. So if you know this song, don't avoid the album that I'm recommending because of this song. It's not on this album that I'm going to. It's not on Pussycats. And I don't even like that song. And the song is Coconut. You know, you put the lime in the coconut. Yeah, that's Harry Nilsson. But this album, Pussycats, which I believe was the album after that, or several after that. See, Coconut was, I think, 1972. He recorded this album, Pussycats, with John Lennon. So if you're a big Beatles fan, you're a big John Lennon fan, and you want to hear a John Lennon album that you never heard before, you should listen to this album because... It's Harry Nilsson and John Lennon. It's uh, So basically, John Lennon had this, what's known as the Lost Weekend. And this is where he was with Yoko Ono, and he just kind of, uh, I guess the, the way to say it would be he bailed on her. <laughs> they got into some sort of, I forget the details, they got into some sort of tiff or something, and he just kind of took off and, and went to L.A. And what he did in L.A. is he partied. And one of the people he's partying with was uh, Harry Nilsson. Okay, I just looked. This is only three years later, 1974, it's Pussycats. But it is after the Beatles. Uh, so he took off. And uh, he's partying with them, and they decided, uh, I don't know if Nilsson was already working on an album, but they, start, they started to do this album together. And it was kind of like a, I think it was kind of a joke at first, but they were partying and they were having fun, which I've said like three times. And Paul McCartney showed up in the studio. Uh, Stevie Wonder showed up in the studio. I don't remember if either of them actually make it onto any of these songs. But they were definitely there, hanging out. And uh, the song, the first song is... It's hard to say about an album, but the first song's the best song. They didn't write this song, neither of them, but they cover Jimmy Cliff's Many Rivers to Cross. And the song is just... If you like that song, you'll like the rest of the album. The second song is a cover of Bob Dylan, Subterranean Homesick Blues. So if you want to hear Harry Nilsson and uh, John Lennon as one of his backup band members cover Bob Dylan, here's your opportunity. Okay, I got nothing after that. I gave you way too much about the album. That's enough. I hope you like it. <laughs> I was going to say, let me know, but it's just so cliche to tell people, let me know. Most people, if you like it, you like it. It doesn't matter if I know, does it? If you want to let me know, you can, but I am uh, going to keep recommending albums until I get bored with it. See you later. Bye-bye. Toodaloo. This is the podcast version of It Matters But It Doesn't. You can also read my blog at itmattersbutitdoesn't.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast because you find some sort of value in it, then you can find a link in the description of each episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you when I see you.